This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. joined in uh, this portion of our program by Corey Albertson. Corey is a visiting lecturer of sociology at uh, Smith College. Uh, His uh, scholarship can be found on the anthologies Feminist Approaches to Media Theory and Research, as well as Youth and Sexualities, Public Feelings, and Contemporary Cultural Politics. Uh, He is joining us on our program talking with us about an interesting publication entitled A Perfect Union, Television, and the Winning of Same-Sex Marriage. What a title that is for a book, huh? (laughs) Nice to have you join us on our program. Thank you so much, Bob. It's such a pleasure to be on your show. Let's go with that title, because when I first had this title run by me, I thought, whoa, wait a minute, all right. That's kind of all-encompassing there, because one of the things I'll mention to folks listening to us is you have a question mark after A Perfect Union. Why that title? Well, let's go with the question mark first. Um, I, I wanted to actually ask that question, is that a perfect union? Is it, is it perfect, or does it actually have some problems with it? And here I'm talking about the union between television and the winning of same-sex marriage. And and so exploring whether that union is perfect or not really centers around the year 2011. And I argue that television played an important role in actually moving the straight public to be in favor of same-sex marriage because 2011 was the first year that the majority of the American public were in favor of same-sex marriage. So we're talking four years before uh, the Supreme Court decision, and it was the largest year-to-year increase that Gallup had ever recorded. So 
uh, it was a nine-point increase from 2010 to 2011. And so that year was very special and very unique. And when I found that out, I was actually uh, sort of uh, experiencing my own conflicts with the idea of marriage. I, my best friend Katie had asked me to be an officiant for her wedding. And, you know, here I am, a gay man, uh, being able to literally sign the paperwork for a straight wedding, but not being able to get married myself. And so I wanted to explore not only the conflicts that I was having, but also the conflicts and the movement that the broader public was having. And so when I went around and was and was looking at sort of what was going on in that year, what I found was that the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation in their annual Where We Are on TV report recorded the highest number of LGBTQ characters for that preceding television season. And so it wasn't just sheer numbers that that were going on in terms of television characters. It was also the types of representations. We were seeing same-sex families and same-sex marriages in ways that we hadn't before because previously it had been mostly all about single same-sex uh, or single gay men or single lesbians. And so it was very much important, I think, uh, to moving uh, the straight public to be in favor of same-sex marriage. Well, let me just ask you the question that I was thinking. In looking at your book, thinking about this discussion today, was this a case in 2011 where, I'll just put it the way I'm thinking it, did television get it? Did television uh, get it right, yeah, do you mean? Basically, yeah. yes. So I argue in my book that they didn't. Uh, I argue that they really had, they really depicted traditional forms of marriage. And actually what I found in the book was that the same-sex relationships on TV very much mimic traditional notions of the ideal 1950s family where you have one partner who tends to be more feminine, one partner who tends to be more masculine. And for the men, especially the feminine one is the stay-at-home caregiver. The masculine one is the working outside the home breadwinner. And then you wrap all of that up in monogamy, all of that up in suburbia, in children, in marriage, and it becomes a nostalgia trap. And so I always like to cite there's one scene in a Grey's Anatomy where there's two women, Callie and Arizona, and they get married. And honestly, it's the best straight wedding that I've ever seen. The women are in the big frou-frou white dresses. Men give them away. They have very, very traditional vows. The scene is showered in pink. I mean, it looks like it's been hosed down with Pepto Bismol. <laughs> and so they just, and, and even better, they juxtapose that scene with the, the main straight couple, which is Meredith and Derek, who just go to the boring, drab, gray courthouse. And so in that scene, the same sex couple is doing the straight wedding better than the straight couple. <laughs> Well, when we talk about the whole idea of the way in which pop culture, including television, um, really depicts things like leads, depicts um, characters, this has such far-reaching effects. I mean, realistically, back when... You know, that Gallup poll came out in 2011. Were you surprised? I was not surprised because I was, I was not surprised that it happened. 
uh, because we had been sort of moving in that direction. If you go back and look at all of the years that they asked that question, are you in favor of same-sex marriage, it had been steadily increasing. What I was surprised by was that that year had the largest. I mean, it literally every year up until then, it had increased, you know, by one percentage point, two percentage points, you know, and it would actually fluctuate. It would go down one year by one percentage point, then it would go up. But that year, it was just a leap. So it wasn't just an increase. It was a jump over the hurdle in a very, very, a big jump. And so that's what really surprised me about that one particular year. And that's why I think that it's so special and unique. One of the things that you talk about in your writing, you use a term called social surrogate, which I think is important to the discussion that we're having today. Can you explain what a social surrogate is? So, yeah. So in my book, I refer, there's a term, you know, I refer to the term societal surrogate. And that term for me uh, was really inspired by a very famous film critic named Laura Mulvey, who talked about a concept called the male gaze. And she was arguing that there are characters in TV shows that look at women, basically, and objectify them. And what I argue is that you can broaden that out, that you can actually have characters who bring not just those values in terms of objectifying women, but who bring long-held societal values, no matter what they are. And so in my book, I argue that there are characters that come in and, and police other characters that are based on uh, traditional male-female roles, uh, ideas about family formation, ideas about marriage, ideas about identity. Because in, in, in that particular example, um, there, uh, we, we typically like to put people in very clear boxes, right? We don't allow for bisexuality very much. We don't allow for, uh, you know, anyone who is wanting to identify as anything other than gay or lesbian. And so we, we like to have people figured out. And in the television shows, they very much represent that. There are many characters that come in and try to police specifically the women characters who do not want to identify as gay or lesbian. They want to identify as, as something else. And so they police them. They try to put them in those boxes. And so I argue that characters like that are societal surrogates. They are bringing those values. They are purposely trying to police people to get them to be, quote-unquote, normal. I guess the question of what um, television is missing would be posed to this thought. Because if you examine TV, one thing that seems to come through loud and clear is this idea that there's just, or seems to be just the way of expressing gay or lesbian identity through romantic or sexual relationships. Um, and perhaps individual stereotypical interests but that doesn't really encompass the full picture, does it? No, it doesn't. You know, this is one of the things that is, is very much a source of conflict within the LGBTQ community is that historically, after the 1960s, so you had the Stonewall Riot in 1960, you know, in the late 1960s, and then, you know, we moved into sort of having the gay liberation movement, which is what it was called, the gay rights movement, the gay liberation movement. And actually, then... They were fighting to disrupt traditional relationship formations, traditional notions of gender. And so historically, the movement itself is actually tied to and founded on 
disrupting a lot of these aspects that we have actually come to see in these representations and the broader LGBTQ movement. We moved away from that idea of disrupting all of these things that were very traditional, which honestly have not historically worked very well for straight people, right? Uh, and I'm talking about the traditional notions of marriage, the traditional gender roles, uh, just traditional ways of being within these relationships. And so we were fighting against that, but we moved away from that to this idea of being, quote, just like us or just like you. And, that, and to be frank, that is how we won same-sex marriage. We, we did a great PR campaign of saying, hey, look, we are just like you. But the issue with that is that that was not entirely accurate at all, that gay uh, men, lesbians, bisexual folks have always been on the forefront of really creating relationships in ways that were meaningful for them that really deviated from traditional uh, notions of family formation and marriage. And so, you know, that's an issue when we sort of create this hierarchy that basically straight couples, straight families have been subjecting themselves to, you know, for centuries. Hopefully you are enjoying our discussion this Sunday morning. I'm Bob Salter. We are in a chat with Corey Albertson, as I mentioned in introducing Corey when we started our program this morning. He is a visiting sociology lecturer at Smith College. His book is a very intriguing one, has the title of A Perfect Union Television and The Winning of Same-Sex Marriage. We've got a lot more to talk with you about. Um, Corey will be around with us for a good portion of our 6 o'clock hour this Sunday morning. It is Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. We're talking with Corey Albertson on our program. Corey is a visiting sociology lecturer at Smith College. He's also the author of A Perfect Union Television and The Winning of Same-Sex Marriage. Corey, when one examines the TV shows, um, the question that naturally comes to mind is how many shows at this point are being produced by people who are identifying as being gay or lesbian? And if so, why are the roles that seem so limited in scope? That's a great question, Bob. So we know that, for example, Glee was produced by Ryan Murphy, who is, you know, very much, uh, he's a super producer. He produces, you know, so many different uh, television shows, but Glee was sort of the one where he came to prominence. We know that Desperate Housewives was uh, uh, created him and, and, uh, produced by Mark Cherry. Uh, and so, you know, there's the, a lot of the other ones. Shonda Rhimes obviously produced Grey's Anatomy. Uh, she herself does not identify as a member of the LGBTQ community, but she's also very much been known for diversifying television in ways that we have historically not seen. And so I think among producers and directors, you know, there was definitely good intentions in terms of representation. And we have to say here that the fact of seeing a person identify as a member of a marginalized group is important. The very fact that they say it is important. But the reason why I think that these folks who had very good intentions in terms of diversifying what we see on television, they are very much bound by the politics and the economics of mainstream television. And you have to be able to create things that are sh just shocking enough, but not too shocking to where you're going to alienate 
audiences. And I, so I think that, that that is what we see uh, in terms of these television creations that, you know, at the time, back in 2010 and 2011, gay folks were still very much a water cooler moment if you had them within the television shows. But you also had to show them be palatable. You actually had to show them be relatable to straight audiences so that you would make sure you wouldn't lose those audiences. And that, frankly, the shows would be successful. Mm. With the shows that you analyzed, talk with us about how it is that race predicted gender expression. That's a great question. And, you know, one of the things that I find, uh, and this is more so among the women characters that I, that I explore, and uh, it was very, very surprising. This was probably one of the things I was surprised with the most was that uh, we, well, so we know that black women in particular, uh, and also uh, other women of color, we're talking about Latino women uh, also, and uh, also, you know, women from South Asia, they have historically been depicted as hypersexual. And in particular, uh, black women, this is a holdover from slavery. You know, we use these narratives of hypersexuality, of aggression, of being able to, being strong, being able to endure, you know, hard labor, um, all of these stereotypes that we created to black women, about black women to justify slavery. We see remnants of that actually in these couples that I examine where the women of color are always the more masculine, hypersexual, overly competitive in terms of their jobs. And the white women that they are with are not just any white women. They are often Aryan white women. They are blonde hair. They are blue eyes. And so that upholds very traditional Western notions of what it means to be feminine, whereas the women of color are upholding very stereotypical and problematic notions, racist notions of what it means to be a woman of color. Hmm. We're talking with Corey Albertson on our program and talking with him about some of the information that is contained in A Perfect Union Television and the Winning of Same-Sex Marriage. He has joined us by phone on our program. One of the thoughts I had heading into our discussion today also talks about um, when you're talking about TV and you talk about gay or lesbian parents on shows that you studied, it seems that for the daughters on the shows, there's a reinforcement of pretty stereotypical feminine expectations. Absolutely. And, you know, that was also something that was very surprising to me. So the race issue was was one of the more surprising factors. And then this was one of the more surprising factors is that once the same-sex couples get into a position where they can then have children, they end up creating hyper-feminine or, you know, hyper-feminine children. And so, you know, in the shows when they, when they adopt, uh, you know, the other thing too is that they also show adoption as something that is very, very easy. Like literally in one episode, this, you know, in Desperate Housewives, the gay couple uh, have been estranged for most of the season. And then all of a sudden they are back together and then they say, oh, we're adopting. They announce they're adopting a child. And then two weeks later, they have this racially ambiguous daughter and she's practicing, you know, violin in their home. And it's not just any violin. It's a hyper, it's a, it's a pink violin, like a hot pink violin. <laughs> and so they are actually trying to show that oh, look, same-sex, sort of similar to the wedding, that, oh, look, same-sex couples can raise better children than the straight 
parents. And so, and that was actually the narrative of that particular show was that they actually were raising uh, better children. And so they do that through, again, it's this whole idea of pink and, you know, these hyper feminine roles. And uh, it's, it's incredibly problematic in that it just creates, again, a, a perfect way of being or a, a best way of being. And, and now we're doing it to children. One of the things that has always struck me, too, with gay and lesbian characters in shows, it seems like they spend a lot of time trying to fix up people who are straight. <laughs> yes, uh, they do. And, you know, that is the ultimate measure of acceptance for same-sex couples, uh, particularly on television, is that they are so successful in their relationships, they are so accepted by straight people that they can literally turn around and try to fix people up. On Modern Family, you literally have an example of Cameron and Mitchell. Cameron literally picks up an elderly woman and places her next to an older man that they think that she should be with. And so they are literally forcing two straight people to be together. And you know, this is, uh, again, this is the ultimate acceptance. We, we've come so far that we can, you know, literally be the experts on creating the perfect marriage and the perfect relationship. Mm. When you talk about these shows that you examined, too, there seems to be a fairly common pattern where, for lack of a better term, it seems like the gay and lesbian characters are trying to seem just like heterosexuals. Why is that? I think that that, that really does uh, go in hand in hand with sort of what I was talking about before, which is this, this whole broader movement of wanting to fight for gay marriage. You, you have to understand that what happened was, you know, again, during the 1970s, we were fighting for all of this disruption. And then when the fight centered on same-sex marriage, because we sort of forgot about all these other things, and we just said, okay, the marker of acceptance for us is going to be same-sex marriage. And when we made that decision as a community, or when people in power made that decision in the community is, is probably a better way of putting it, those folks in power, and, and I include people in Hollywood here who are creating these shows, they wanted to participate in this narrative and in this marriage equality movement. And the way that, that the LGBTQ community and those in power within that community constructed that argument was, look, we are only going to win this by proving to heterosexuals that we are just like you, that love is love, right? That our relationships uh, have the ability to create just as good, you know, children as, as, as y'all are creating, which is actually statistically true. They do, you know, create, uh, you know, and, and, and um, parent very well. Um, but the, the issue with that narrative is that it became the narrative for the LGBTQ community. And we sort of let all of the other issues fall by the wayside. And then on the flip side, once we got it, we sort of, you know, kind of, you know, washed our hands and said, okay, we are done. And we are not done by a long shot in terms of, you know, LGBTQ rights. All right. I want to ask you about a show that I think at the time had a tremendous impact on television and some will say on the overall culture. Mm -hmm. And it's being 
rebooted, interestingly enough, now. Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. Yes, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy uh, is is interesting uh, right now because you have small moments of subversion. You have small moments of sort of a disruption of normalcy. So, for example, in one episode, they actually are making over a gay man, and the gay man is sort of into leather culture. And I was watching it, and I was like, wow, that's something that you don't see. You actually don't see that because it sort of shows uh, you know, a form of sexuality that is, quote-unquote, not considered normal, right? And so the fact that they showed that was, was I think, really, really important. Um, but then on the flip side of that, you have many of the shows revolve around creating the narrative of the makeover for the purposes of being in a romantic relationship. And so they are making people over in the hopes that they will, you know, be in a romantic relationship. And and the depictions that they have are problematic in that now they are not just making over straight men. They are also making over gay men. And so that's the difference. That's why they dropped the, you know, the original show was Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, and now they just call it Queer Eye, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're doing both. And so I think that you also run the risk there of sort of creating a problematic narrative of, oh, this is how you need to be gay. This is the right way to be gay, and this is all of the narratives. You will get a you will get a boyfriend out of this, or you will get a romantic relationship out of this. And so, I I, I worry that that show is also participating in these problematic narratives that I was talking about. You know, with the year two thousand and ten. Corey Albertson, who is a visiting sociology lecturer at Smith College and the author of A Perfect Union Television and The Winning of Same Sex Marriage, is talking with us on our program on the fan. At 7.30 this morning, the NFL preview happens. Of course, uh, another football Sunday. After our 8 o'clock update, it's uh, the Sports Edge program with uh, Rick Wolf, And football Sunday along after our 9 o'clock update. More with Corey in this discussion. We hope you're enjoying this Sunday morning. It's Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Solter. It's the NFL preview that happens at 7.30 this morning. We're in a discussion with Corey Albertson on our program. He's been with us since we started our show at 6 this morning. Another guest is going to join us in a short period of time. Corey, um, you know, one of the thoughts is with this TV season, you've got shows like Queer Eye, um, Will & Grace, Roseanne all rebooted, of course, Roseanne before the cancellation and then a reboot of Roseanne with the Connors without Roseanne. At times, these shows have gay and lesbian characters or storylines. The real question, though, is are they reflecting a change in American culture? Right now, I think that it's really a mixed bag, and I would argue it's it's leading towards not being all that uh, progressive from what you know I documented in my book, you know, from six years ago. Will and Grace, in particular, is interesting. We know how much of a cultural influence that was. There was a very famous study that took 250 college students and exposed them to to Will and Grace, and actually found that it lowered levels of sexual prejudice, and it lowered the levels of sexual prejudice the most among folks who had not had 
uh, exposure to gay men and lesbians. And so we know how important these shows are in terms of moving social attitudes. But the issue is that, for example, on Will and Grace, when it ended the first iteration, they were in relationships and they were in consistent relationships. And then when the show came back, they retconned all of that and Will is now chronically single again. And so now what they're showing is, you know, that he's chronically single, but is always wanting a relationship. And so that in itself also is participating in this narrative of, oh, your life, your life is not complete unless you are in a romantic relationship, and particularly a long-term, consistent, monogamous, you know, romantic relationship. And so they're very much perpetuating um, a lot of the stereotypes that we have seen, you know, throughout the years. And so there really hasn't been that much progression. Mm. When you look at the streaming services, you know, like Netflix and Amazon, um, you know, you have characters or roles played on there that are offering some representations that we, we're not seeing on quote-unquote mainstream uh, television shows, where are they really putting forth some of the movement for trans rights? That's a great question. So I really think that trans visibility is sort of the next phase of all of this. As I sort of alluded to before, you know, gay folks used to be the water cooler moment, but we've become so normalized that we are no longer the water cooler moment, right? We've sort of lost our edge. Uh, and now the, you know, media and in particular uh, television shows have looked to trans folks to sort of become that water cooler movement, movement. And so they are gaining visibility. But I think it's important to remember that among, you know, whether we're talking about, you know, gay folks, whether we're talking about trans folks, whether we're talking about, you know, race and ethnicity, for any marginalized group, visibility is a trap. And so it offers very much needed representation to literally see a person say that they are trans on television is very powerful, but is it backed up? with the varied experiences of the trans experience, oftentimes not. And so what we see, particularly in terms of trans characters, as well as the actors who portray them, and here I'm talking about Laverne Cox, and you can extend that out to Caitlyn Jenner as well, although you know, obviously she didn't play a character, but she did have her own reality TV show, is that they're very much participating in hyperfemininity, um, or if you're trans men, hypermasculinity. And so I do want to say that for trans folks, this has often been a way of survival, right? That we know that if you don't look uh, what society expects a woman to look like or what expects a man to look like, that you are targeted for violence. And so there's not a right way or a wrong way to be trans. But the issue is that the trans experience is varied, and there are many beautiful differences, especially in terms of gender expression. And when you only have a few few trans characters who, for example, trans women, and they are hyper-feminine, they are participating in traditional feminine roles, you run the risk of saying that all trans characters should be this way, and that even more broadly, that society adopts this hierarchy uh, of viewing trans folks like this. And so a lack of varied representation can actually run the risk of creating a broader narrative of a right way to be trans. The voice of Corey Albertson. Corey talking with us about some of the information that's contained in his work and his book is entitled A Perfect Union, Television and the Winning of Same-Sex Marriage. Thank you very much for joining us on our program. Bob, thank you so much. This was a real pleasure. Wonderful discussion. Very good book as well. Certainly continued 
Good luck with your work. Thanks so much. We are joined in uh, this portion of our program by the executive director and founder of Rowdy Girl Sanctuary. Renee King Sonnen is joining us on our program. Uh, should be a very interesting discussion that we are going to have uh, with her. First of all, it's nice to have you join us. Good morning. Good morning. And for the benefit of folks who are listening to our discussion today, I say Rowdy Girl Sanctuary. Some of them will go, what? What did he just say? How do you describe what Rowdy Girl Sanctuary is? Well, Rowdy Girl Sanctuary is a 501c3 nonprofit that was created when my little calf, Rowdy Girl, it's actually, uh, her name is Rowdy Girl. She's a cow now. Um, she pretty much changed my life. I'm born and bred Texas girl. And when I moved out here to the ranch uh, in Angleton, Texas, I wasn't prepared for what was going to happen to me as a result of getting to know the cows that I typically never even paid attention to. And um, my husband wanted me to get a better um, feel for what it was to be a rancher because I really wasn't interested. And so he told me about this uh, fella up the road that had a couple of calves, and one of them happened to be Rowdy Girl. And I named her Rowdy Girl because she was quite the rowdy little thing. And they needed to be bottle-fed. And uh, Rowdy Girl just thrived, and she became my little bouncing, you know, little bundle of joy out in the pasture. Uh, and I just I fell in love with her, and she began to give me an entrance to the cows out in the pasture that I'd never really seen before. So six years later, you know, I went vegan, and, of course, there's a big story in between all that, and I named the sanctuary after her. And in terms of the size, the scope of the work that you do at the sanctuary, how would you describe that? Well, we, our nonprofit will be three years old, February the 20th um, of 2018. And when I first started Rowdy Girl Sanctuary, I had no idea that we were going to get the following, the support, um, the love from all over the country and in many parts of the world. Our story has been translated in, I don't know, nine or ten different languages. Um, and I just, um, the scope, gosh, uh, you know, I, I, I can't begin to tell you. I know that ranchers are beginning to reach out to us uh, because we have a program called Rancher Advocacy Program uh, that we're, that's in development, and we're developing that with some very key industry leaders in the movement. And so, you know, my goal, my biggest heart and passion lies in, you know, doing whatever I can as someone that used to be in the industry, well, my husband more than me, but um, but still we, we were in the industry. And I just want to be able to, you know, be there for other ranches that, you know, that are having that change of heart. And quite honestly, all ranches that I know, all ranchers that I've ever spoke to, you know, they love their animals. They, you know, they're just doing what they've always done out of tradition and culture and, you know, um, to feed their family. And so, you know, if we can be there as an advocate for them going forward, um, that's, that's really my, my greatest 
my greatest mission. Now, the documentary Ranch Rescue. Yes, sir. How, how do you describe what's, what that's really covering, especially to people who are listening to your, your words who you know live in this greater New York City metropolitan area, a lot of them in very urban conditions? Um, how can they really understand? Ranch Rescue. Yeah, Ranch Rescue uh, happened when we were in the throes of evacuation from Hurricane Harvey, which, as most all your listeners uh, will have heard of, and our sanctuary, you know, we were we were just dumbfounded that the hurricane advanced as quickly as it did and became a Category Four with unprecedented floods um, that were expected and. So when we saw that it was going to become a Category 4, we uh, we leapt into action, and we evacuated all of our animals, and we have, you know, 96. And what happened is during that evacuation, um, I was doing all I could to document the, what was happening because there was nobody around, you know, uh, especially on Sunday. There was nobody but me and my husband. And... Uh, I just documented everything I could on my iPhone uh, while trying to help my husband because re- literally it was it was just mayhem. And when we finally got everybody uh, evacuated and to safety and could finally just take a deep breath, uh, you know, we were not at our sanctuary. Obviously, it was being flooded. All of our animals were at different locations, um, you know, in, in, in a safe zone. And I told my husband, I said, we've got to get a documentarian out here. No one will believe this, that we've been through this. I said, we've got to document it. So we were chosen for a vegan documentary called The Vegan Movie uh, a couple of years ago. And the producer, Glenn Scott Lacey, is in Oregon. And just something told me to call Glenn because we had such a great rapport with him. And so I called Glenn in Oregon and at first he was like, well, gosh, Renee, it's short notice. I don't know if I can, you know, I know I can't come. I don't know if I can get anybody down there or not. Well, he got off the phone with me, and it wasn't maybe a half hour later. He called me back and said, I got the perfect guy. And so John Meyer flew from Oregon to Texas in the middle of everything going on. And, I mean, he was like here, lickety split, uh, within 24 hours, and he's stayed with me and my husband at um, his mo- my husband's mother had died uh, a few months ago and so her house was vacant and so we were holing up there and John stayed with us and followed us everywhere that we went that whole week as we were you know doing everything we could to take care of our animals to figure out what we were going to do next to just documenting everything that was going on with the Hurricane Harvey, what, what Hurricane Harvey left in its wake. And finally, when we were able to uh, get to the sanctuary, when they lifted the uh, the restrictions so that we could come down Highway 35 and actually see the damages, he was with us then, too. And uh, But before he came with us, they actually went up in a plane, uh, he went up in a plane and got all this footage uh, of the sanctuary, you know, in a plane. And then he came with us when we were actually able to see the sanctuary for the first time. And I'm telling you, the footage is so scary. Uh, we had to go out on a canoe and, um, you know, 
to, to assess the damages out on the pasture. Our home um, took on 13 inches of water, our home in our Rowdy Girl Sanctuary office. So it was quite scary uh, given the fact that it was purported to be a 500 to 800-year flood event. Um, and we got all of it documented into a 30-minute beautiful documentary that really depicts what happened to us in the evacuation. Uh, climate change is interwoven throughout the documentary, as well as our, you know, our love for the animals and the need to, you know, rescue ranches. So quite poignant. Interesting discussion we're having with Renee King Sonnen on our program this morning. Hopefully you are enjoying at 730. It's the NFL preview. And after our eight o'clock update, it's the Sports Edge program here on The Fan. In uh, this portion of our program, this is Bob Solter, and we're pleased to have a guest who is in studio with us. We always love when that happens. It doesn't happen often enough on uh, this program or at this uh, station or at this hour, quite <laughs> frankly, on uh, Sundays. Um, Camille Raya is in studio with us. Uh, she has an interesting story to share because we're going to be talking about – let me give you an overall – context and then we'll build into the story. It's a story of a New Jersey based legal professional basically rebuilding her life. That's kind of a tease with this. First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning. Oh, thank you, Bob. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here and talk to you. There's a lot of different things I want to ask you. I want to get into talking about uh, your story, what you've been through, because it's, to say the least, quite the experience. But <laughs> yes. a couple things background-wise, because I always like to set background for folks listening to discussions that we have. I mentioned the fact you have a legal background. Correct. How did you and why did you get into law? It, it sort of just happened. I always had an interest in science mm-hmm. and actually... I saw law as a possibility of maybe going into an area of environmental law initially because I had a passion for the environmental sciences. It evolved differently after that. I, I you know, being having a, a, a bachelor of science in biology and minor in chem, I ended up first doing patent work and then ended up doing some high level litigation like uh, 
medical malpractice, asbestos litigation, things like that nature. So things just kind of evolve. Um, and I did a lot of trial work, and I found that fascinating, and I was very much interested in doing that in my early years, mostly because it frightened me. <laughs> and so that was something I wanted to tackle, to just bas- basically to have such a handle on cases and then be able to present it to a jury. And I was grateful for that experience and having done quite a bit of that, especially with in the asbestos sector, mm-hmm. representing shipyard workers, most so down in Baltimore, was down there for two summers back in the day of late 80s, early, early 90s. From that, I really developed a confidence level of being able to take the practice. I was working in firms, some prestigious firms at the time, and just step out on my own which I did in 91. Was that a frightening move? Yes, but I was ready for it. I, I, I was ready for it. I wanted to have that, that, that autonomy. Mm-hmm. I wanted to have that. Um, it was still at a time that I saw a lot of the glass ceiling that still existed everywhere, and I figured mm-hmm. this was something that maybe I eventually can do and develop and, and something that I can maybe do part-time or if, you know, ideally I married somebody who was also an attorney and could assist would be able to then continue with it and me to step back into it. It was all just an evolutionary process. It wasn't, you sort of, you can't plan everything. So that's how it, so law came about as a result of that. I was always told that um, I spoke well and um, I thought well and that I'd be good at, at being an attorney. My father was very supportive and encouraging me to be an attorney. In fact, he's a physician, and though I was thinking of medical school, I think doctors want their kids to be lawyers, and lawyers want their kids to be doctors, and that's where I kind of fell in. So I sort of, okay, I'll I'll try law. (laughs) And I'm always curious about this with lawyers. How much of what you're doing in practicing law really almost turns into performance? When you're a litigator, mm-hmm. um, right now I've been doing a lot of transactional work, so it's not so much that. It's more, it's a different different mm-hmm. realm. But when you're a litigator, very much so. Mm. Very much so. It's really taking the facts that are there and then just kind of harnessing them and trying to present them in the best format that would serve your client. Mm-hmm. Mm. And it's... Um, it, it's part of... It's the way of the opposing, the opposing side doing the same for their client. Okay. Now let's get into talking about this story because it's an incredible one. I mean, how are you today, first of all? Uh, I'm well, thank you. It, it's been a process, but I am, I am actually, as a result of all the trauma that we've experienced, I feel actually more empowered and stronger as a result of it all. Mm. Pained, but actually I tapped into some strength and resources within myself that I didn't even realize I had until I was faced with circumstances that required me to tap into it. So I'm grateful that I know that part about myself that I did not know before. Okay. Now, to take us through the story, uh, as you mentioned, your uh, ex-husband was um, an attorney as well. Correct. All right. How did the two of you meet, first of all? Uh, We were both very active in a, a local legal organization, mm-hmm. um, and um, we met there. And with his firm, the firm that he was involved in, what exactly was going on that caused this basic downfall here? Well, he joined my practice in 96, five years after I had started the practice, the year we got married. Um, and then... Um, very intelligent man, and and I, I still say a good man, but something clearly went wrong. 
because he's not he's not he, he's not a greedy person mm -hmm. just but he did some poor judgments i can't explain what happened exactly but the year after we got married i had my first child and then um after my second child then moving to new jersey at the very end of 99 he basically continued the practice on his own and developed the practice and grew it was initially a general practice with uh, one section being elder law and he focused primarily on elder law and became well respected in that field to the point where he was actually speaking at seminars and from what i understand doing quite well and had it together um i think just the pressures of you know i had my third child in the spring of 9-11 not five months before 9-11 and the practice was in new york city at the time we had moved to bergen county mm -hmm initially living in Bay Ridge, but had moved to Bergen County by that point. And with the loss of the building, because it was closed as a result of what had happened, it was down in that area, and with the onset of uh, litigation concerning asbestos issues later on, he found himself what was to be temporarily relocated into the Bay Ridge section of Brooklyn. Well, you didn't want to be anywhere in this area where we yeah, are now. Yeah, you couldn't be, but the commute was just, right. you know... Right. It wasn't no longer taking the train in anymore, and it was just a from Bergen County. It was hard. And three little kids at home, and whoever knows. Eventually, he just ended up taking certain funds from client accounts and guardianship accounts that was improper, mm -hmm. was wrong, and um, I can't explain what went wrong there. And when I do ask him those questions, he just tells me, um, "You can't make something rational that's irrational." He acknowledges it was wrong he doesn't something broke because this is this was a this is a good man this just did some bad stuff mm -hmm. however the trust and all that and the pain and the aftermath was just too devastating for the marriage to survive so how did you find out the day is emblazoned in my head mm -hmm. july 1st 2008 um the children were home from school my youngest had just finished full day first grade he was seven eight and ten year old children sleeping in their beds i get a door the door rings very early in the morning um and i look out the window and i see a whole number of police cars with their lights twirling and it just didn't make sense that's not a good sign oh my goodness i i, I but i wasn't making sense it just was because this is not yeah you know, they're at the wrong place what's going on is there mm. some urgency something going on the block is there a, a, another <laughs> attack mm. we're being warned about i i didn't know mm. what in fact, I, you know, I opened the door. I even said, "You have the wrong house," and they said, "No, we have the right house." And, and at that point, I still thought my husband was flabbergasted, not knowing what was going on. This is what I was assuming. I mean, because this is a man who was always such a straight shooter. I mean, he would be upset if I put the recycling in the wrong compartment. And so I never, ever, and always had a presence of calm, you know, that you can rely on him. So he did not show the meltdown he was having inside. So mm. this apparently, unfortunately, was going on for some years that he had taken improperly. And the poor man needed intervention, but because of his such a calm demeanor on the outside, he didn't get it, you know, and, and, and he was a likable guy. and So he got passes and he needed help. But mm. any event, so I had these all these police officers coming into my home. And, and at that point, I was still, from what I learned later, part of the investigation because my name was not only on the firm um it was also on certain matters of which i was appointed guardian on back in the 90s when i had practiced that he had continued to manage mm. and so i understood later 
but at the time I didn't, why I'd be part of the investigation, because my name is mixed up in there until they do their investigation and realize it had nothing to do with me. So it was scary. They, From what I understand, they had issued search warrants at the same time at uh, the Brooklyn office that he had, and then at my home. And they required me to sit downstairs on the first floor and wouldn't let me go to my children who were sleeping in their beds. That was very, very troubling, because I was so scared of my babies. You know, this is mm-hmm. not what... This is this is a B movie I'm living. This is not my world. What I I was in shock, and that feeling lasted a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, they were there for a good number of hours. I'm so grateful my kids slept through that, and they left the house with boxes of different papers and computers. I mean, even papers that had to do with my my children's schoolwork that were mixed up with my papers that I was very active with the with with the school and I was I think it was a great parent at the time and it was so there was a lot of things I did with the school. They just just left with a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh I was still couldn't make sense what I'm thinking this is a mistake. Did somebody file a complaint? I didn't and it, it wasn't um until after they left that I was able to speak to my husband and I looked at him and I asked do you know what's going on? And all he said at that time was, I advanced myself on commissions. And that alone just threw me for a loop. I was, And I, I understood that as being commissions, commissions that a, a number that he's entitled to take, but that he would take early before the subsequent court order. Usually you, you have a number you can figure out is based on a, on a formula, gets approved by a court examiner, and then it might take some time for an order to be issued. Right. So I'm thinking, okay, this was money that he would have been entitled to take, but it was still wrong to take it early. To me, that's as an attorney, that's awful, and that's awful enough in of itself. Mm-hmm. And he said they wanted him to go down and speak to them. And I'm like, yes, go for it. You know, I'm thinking, go explain. I'm just. This is before I, I learned after the fact that it was actually over time he had taking more than what he was entitled to, and that was really mm. why. When he had so much work there to get done, yet he, for whatever reason, couldn't get it out. I mean, he had a breakdown. He clearly did. And I feel for him, but the aftermath was just so painful and so devastating. We're talking with Camille Raya on this portion of our program on The Fan this Sunday morning. It's the Sports Edge with Rick Wolf that follows our 8 o'clock update. Football Sunday time with Malusis and Deal after our 9 o'clock update. And, of course, NFL previews at 7.30 this Sunday morning. We're talking with uh, Camille Raya on our program, and um, she's sharing an awful lot with us, and talking about her story and also the road back uh, from this uh, traumatic experience that she and her family have been through. Um, keeping your, for lack of a better term, mental stability mm-hmm. during all of this, mm-hmm. what was that like? To say I was upset is an understatement. <laughs> I would think so, yes. <laughs> so I, I think no matter how normal and grounded you are, one would be upset and and, and, and be allowed that. Um, but I am grateful, as I said before, of what I've learned about myself, that I'm just not made to break. I mean, if you had told me before this all happened that this would happen, I would have been, oh, my God, I can't deal with this. No. 
but you don't really know what strength you have until you have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And I dealt with it because I just, it, 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 I didn't just pack up and run away. And mostly because I wanted to keep that stability and not have my kids feel like that they have to hide or run away from the community to keep their heads up high. And I just was, I felt like the Phoenix bird, you know, just kind of opening my wings and hovering over my children, protecting them from the fire as I fought through with tears and ang- and, and anxiousness. And it's not that I didn't break down and cry, but I didn't break down my logical thinking, my rational thought never broke down. That was always intact. I always kept my eye forward. Though it was difficult sometimes to push through because of the emotions, but I kept going. And um, and from the fire then just kind of evolved. But it, it was traumatic and painful for, for all of us, and particularly the children. My, my, my daughter, when this all happened in, in the summer of 2008, she had just graduated elementary school. She was just about to start middle school, which was a very hard time under normal circumstances for girls. And so to have all that chatter and talk about dad and you know yes. the, and the self-esteem of children is based on what their parents mm-hmm. are about so i needed to give that to my children i needed to model you know okay dad's not a bad person but he did a bad thing and you know and it's not all about you know you've got also me and i'm going to model for you guys strength endurance resilience that you can be proud of and you can take that internalize and grow with that and and i that was my my incentive my motivation at least part of it. Final question for you, because you've been very kind with your time. This is a natural one, and to some extent I think you've answered this, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because some of the people listening to us may be wondering. A situation like what you went through, given the right circumstances, could this happen to anybody? Oh, most certainly. Most certainly. I mean... When you, you know, I, I, yeah, how you, you just, if you, you, if you, you're working with other people or you, 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 you have trust in other people and you believe what's said and you rely on that, of course it could happen. It doesn't make you stupid. It doesn't make you, uh, you know, dishonest. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's just that it makes you vulnerable that, the people you rely on can do something that could be very damaging to you personally. So, yes, I mean, of course, it could happen to anybody. And particularly when there is that extra trust, particularly in a marriage, or even when you're just friends, you certainly give, uh, you know, a certain deference as to what that person is doing. Um, It's so important, knowing that, um, to be guarded, uh, and, and not to, not to be where you can't have that trust, but only to an extent. Not to be so foolishly, openly trust. Not, not to be like a child, mm-hmm. and so trusting. And 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 that's what I have learned from this. And and um, I, I guess maybe having grown in a, in, a, in a more privileged way at the time you know and my my mother had a doctorate in french came over here after marrying my dad from italy and basically my father took over everything this is kind of the i had grown with that to be able to 
or, or, or that was basically my, my lack of growth was just not having to ever been exposed to any sort of trauma like that or the different psyche of people. I was very naive and, and it's important not to be. It, it's important to, to, to love people, trust people, but realize people have issues and you, you don't just take them for, for their face value. And, and it, it took having this experience to, to learn that. So I needed to learn that. And, and, um, and I regret very much what had happened. Camille, thank you very much for your time and also for sharing your words with us um, today because your words are very powerful. The story is one that can definitely provide a lesson for a lot of the people listening to us as well. And we wish you continued success on your journey back. I am so grateful, Bob, that you took an interest in having giving me this opportunity to talk. and I am very, very grateful. appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us on our program this Sunday morning. You know what program's coming up next after our 8 o'clock update. Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge, and Melusis and Deal are by with the Football Sunday Show after 9 this Sunday morning. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.